For members of Toronto's queer community, the definition of pride is as wide and varied as the people who make up its distinctive tapestry. From its humble beginnings as a Hamlin's Point barbecue in the 70s to the month-long celebration we revel in today, pride is an indomitable force. For many in the community, particularly the younger generation, pride is a celebration. It's bright costumes, parades, parties, an expression of our true selves and all we fought to achieve. But we sometimes forget it was a literal fight. While Pride Today is an annual tourist draw, we should keep in mind that people fought for this. They fought to have that picnic at Hanlon's 40 years ago. They fought for the parade, for representation, for the rights afforded their fellow human beings, and yes, just to be who they are and love who they love. And that fight is defined by the relationship between Toronto's queer community and the law. On February 5th, 1981, Operation Soap was carried out by the Metro Toronto Police. Over 300 gay men were arrested and detained, pulled half-naked onto the street and exposed to the world. The next day, 3,000 people rioted for their brothers' and sisters' freedom and human rights. This clash is considered by most to be the coming out of Pride as we know it today. It was invoked last year when Black Lives Matter challenged the broader community to confront police violence against the marginalized. And just as the LGBTQ plus community was grappling with this conflict, we begin to notice members of our community have been going missing at an alarming rate. We start to worry. We hear whispers of a serial killer in our community. We put up posters, share social media posts, start neighborhood watches, and we ask the police for help. Nothing discernibly happens. PhD criminology candidate Sasha Reed provides police with a detailed and largely accurate profile of who this monster could be. Nothing happens. The community demands more resources. Nothing happens. Finally, on January 18th, after months in the dark, we learn an arrest has been made and a man is being charged with what is currently eight counts of first-degree murder, with the possibility of more constantly looming. After all of this, Toronto Police Chief Mark Saunders said, We knew that people were missing and we didn't have the right answers, but nobody was coming to us with anything. Effectively shifting the blame and accusations of mismanagement against the police force to the grieving community they were supposed to protect. Disregarding all the information that was brought forward, the pleas for assistance, and our own insistence something was very, very wrong. We were scared. We remain scared. However, fear has never stopped the queer community, and it never will. Now, with the inclusion of the Until We Are Safe movement in this year's Pride, we are doing exactly what queers have always done best. Speaking up, rallying, fighting. I'm Gavin Bowerman, and this is Spacing Radio. We are back in the broom closet at 401 Richmond Street West, Toronto, Ontario. I'm Glenn Bowerman, and you're listening to the official podcast of Spacing Magazine. Coming up on the show, we talk to Gabriel Edelman, assistant professor and director of the Urban Policy Lab at University of Toronto, who helped make a treasure trove of Toronto urbanist history digital for the wonks and anyone curious about the city's development. But first... Alok Mukherjee was the chair of the Toronto Police Services Board from 2005 to 2015. In that time, he worked to reform policing in this city. Now he has a book, Excessive Force, Toronto's Fight to Reform City Policing. 
Written with the Toronto Star's Tim Harper, it details the difficulty of changing the way police deal with marginalized people, people in mental health crisis, and the creeping militarization of the force. Stand by. I wanted to start off, uh, you know, I'm not trying to be controversial, but uh, last April, uh, a suspect was taken peacefully in a a very uh, globally recognized uh, violent act. And uh, a lot of the commentary was about uh, how remarkable it was that that, uh, the suspect was taken peacefully without any shots being fired by the police. I, I wanted to start by saying, why should we be surprised that, that a suspect was taken without any uh, sort of armed violence on, on behalf of the police? That's an excellent question. What is remarkable about that incident is that it was um, seen as a remarkable response by the police because what it showed me was if police follow their rule book and their procedure, that's exactly how should they should be doing things. Um I'd go further. I thought that people got it wrong. I mean, I know that the police chief made a big deal of the fact that this is proof that our training in de-escalation is working. There was no de-escalation. The man did not have a gun in his arm or any weapon. Um, He was in plain sight. And uh, the police officer who took him down um, followed uh, his... his, uh, um, judgment and his um, uh, uh, procedures and it was a peaceful resolution. I cannot help wondering if there would have been the same response if it had been any other part of the city mm-hmm. or the uh, individual had been of any other background than this particular one. Right. Why do you think culturally we're so surprised when you know, people even talked about his remarkable restraint. But this, uh, you know, reading your book, this is the goal. This is the, you know, at least <laughs> whether or not we attain it, that is the goal of of a community police officer. That is right. Um, we expect we give the police officers tremendous power. We give them a gun. We give them some training. They are given huge amount of discretionary authority by the law which they are exercising on our streets and in our neighborhoods. What we want them to do on behalf of the community is to, to the maximum extent possible, resolve situations peacefully. We also know that um, the vast majority of the situations that they deal with are not criminal situations like the one on Young Street. The vast majority of situations they deal with are um, related to people experiencing some kind of crisis. They're not criminals. They're not violent by nature of the incident or the situation. And as Justice Yakabuchi said in his report to the police chief on people in crisis, that even the goal should be zero harm that even one death is too many. So it's not so much, the public concern is not so much around how people deal with violent crime. 
public concern which I share and try to deal with in my book is around how police deal with those situations which do not involve people engaged in violent crime. Yeah, and I wanted to speak about people in crisis uh, because uh, one of the cruxes of your book is that uh, um, for various uh, social, political reasons, uh, police are now sort of a frontline uh, of defense. Well, I shouldn't even say frontline of defense. They are our frontline social workers in a way for people uh, who are experiencing a mental health crisis. Uh, but uh, the the training and, and the culture that they receive, uh, they are not equipped to deal with this. Uh, and you, you go as far as to say that uh, the... The, the many deaths that you document over the last 30, 40 years in Toronto uh, of people having a mental health crisis who, who died at the hands of police, you, you go as far as to calling it the cull of the other. Can you unpack that a little? It is an irony. 10 years, 12 years ago, police officers, the older, long-serving police officers, used to deny vehemently that they were social workers. Mm-hmm. And today, they have been turned into social workers. And the argument I make in the book is that if that is the direction in which we are going as a result of political, economic, uh, social reasons, then we have to consider the model of policing. I make a couple of arguments um, uh, in terms of how police deal with uh, people in mental health crisis, because that's a big responsibility that has been downloaded or sideloaded onto the police. As I point out, there has always been a pattern in the society of stigmatizing, considering as dangerous, people of certain with certain characteristics. And society has dealt with them in many different ways. With mental health, that differential treatment has been taken to another level where it is okay for the police to kill somebody whose crime was that they were experiencing a mental health crisis. That's why I use the phrase culling of the other. There is a moral, ethical and political question there that we as a society have to deal with. And there are two aspects of it. One, is it okay for us? Is it satisfactory for us to turn a health issue into a policing issue? And two, if that's what we are going to do, are we deploying the correct resource? Is the uniformed armed police officer the right resource to deal with people in mental health crisis. So in my book, I argue for a different way of thinking about all the different responsibilities that have been now downloaded or sideloaded onto the police. And beyond that, uh, you mentioned in the book that uh, um, former chief uh, Bill Blair had to uh, constantly, when he was addressing, uh, making his commemoration speech to to newly graduated uh, police officers, uh, uh, he had to disabuse them of this uh, line that they'd hear from their superiors often, which is, uh, this is this is the real show, like forget everything you, you learned in police college. And, and former Chief Blair had to say, please don't, like, please remember your training. There's a reason for that training. Yes, because the other problem with policing is the power 
of police culture. And I make a distinction in the book and in my other writing between the visible formal culture and the invisible informal culture, which I say is made up of folklore, mythology, anecdotes, history, and so on, and is passed down by word of mouth. And Chief Blair, former Chief Blair, was very aware of that as a long-time member of the Toronto Police Service and of policing community generally. And so he had a reason for telling every new recruit to pay attention to their training and not be taken in by that informal culture. But the problem is that that informal culture prevails in a very strong and powerful way. Yeah, and I, I wanted to talk uh, talk about that as well because um, uh, former Chief Blair, uh, the book sort of uh, starts with uh, a sort of an optimism. You came in uh, in, in two thousand five uh, as the the chair of the Police Service Board. You were you were chair from two thousand five to two thousand fifteen. Uh, you began work with uh, with uh, former Chief Blair, and he. Uh, he seemed to be on board with uh, what you've always done in, in your work in, in your various uh, positions, uh, which is uh, pretty much putting an equity lens on, on whatever you you approach. And uh, uh, something broke there, and it seemed to start with the G20 and then with Tavis. Uh, can you talk about that? Both of us recognized that um, there was a huge, big issue about how the police provided its services to a very diverse community such as ours. We both were conscious of the history of controversies, of situations that had gone wrong, of the blame that the police had taken, of the number of human rights complaints that uh, each year uh, we were facing against the police. And we shared the view that this was not something that can be resolved by uh, mere training or writing new policy. What we needed to do was take a more systematic, comprehensive look at every aspect of policing, including human resources, um, how do we allocate resources, um, what are our systemic practices when it comes to promotion, when it comes to recruitment? Are there things in the organization that act as barriers to inclusive, equitable, human rights-focused um, behavior by the organization? Because our view was that if we can reform and change the organization, change at the street level will come. And we partnered with the Chief Commissioner of the Human Rights Commission of Ontario to start a project. We were the first in Toronto to do that. And it was a sea change because the historical relationship between the police and the Human Rights Commission had been adversarial. There was always a complaint and there was always a defense. We said, let's break through that impasse, that old history, and bring the commission in to our building as a partner. We did that. 
And I think the first phase of that work was very, very productive. And it was a team of over 100 police officers, um, members of the police services board and members of the Human Rights Commission working together produced very good recommendations that dealt with policy, that dealt with procedures, that dealt with training, that dealt with changing in our systemic practices. But then came the second phase of implementation. And by then, these other issues had arisen, uh, the G20 debacle and fiasco, the uh, uh, Sami Yatim uh, killing, mm -hmm. the budget crisis, and Blair's um, credibility in the community had taken a big beating by then, and so had the boards. So we were we found ourselves more in a crisis response mode, and Blair became um, preoccupied with those other um, slew of issues that he was now faced with, and the enthusiasm for implementing the recommendations of the project seems to have evaporated. Right. I'm trying to imagine another uh, an, another form of employment where your boss and, and the police board is the, the boss of, of the chief and, and the police service. Uh, I'm trying to imagine another scenario where your boss can say, what are you working on? And you can say, don't worry about it. But uh, you mentioned time and again that the, the sort of wall that you came up against is the police don't have to be forthright about operational uh, matters, even to their employer, which is the police services board. It is quite a unique situation, and it is paradoxical, because the model of policing that we have is one that um, is characterized by civilian governance. And the explicit purpose of that is to shield police from direct political interference, which is the case in many other countries. Um, even in the United States, um, the mayor plays a very big role. If the mayor uh, is displeased, the chief goes. And that is an understandable goal. To, to you, you don't want too much political That's interference. Right. That's right. And... Uh, uh, but on the other hand, um, the law has created certain lines of demarcation in terms of the responsibility or the authority of the police board and that of the chief of police. Mm -hmm. um, and also um, in terms of resources, the police chief has... Uh, way more resources in terms of access to information, in terms of um, um, analysis, in terms of expert advice than the board does. Mm -hmm. I mean, Toronto Police Board is one of the better ones in that we have uh, a few senior staff members. There are other boards which depend even more on the chief. Right. Right. So there's an imbalance, um, both because of uh, legal reasons of demarcation of responsibility and because of um, asymmetrical resources. 
So there's not a lot the board can do if the chief gives you a report um, and the board wanted to uh, get behind that report. I'll give you an example. When we were dealing with the knee, the issue of the cost of policing and I wrote a report for my board making a series of recommendations of changing our model of policing. And the board received that report and the chief was asked to um, consider my recommendations and uh, come back with his response. And lo and behold, um, most of the most significant recommendations and the chief told the board would not achieve any savings. And yet, some years later, the very same recommendations are now part of the police board's transformational recommendation, mm -hmm. and this chief accepts them. Right. So I can only draw the conclusion that the report that was provided to the board was to suit the chief's preference and convenience, and the board had no way to question his report. We did that eventually mm -hmm. when the city gave the board money to bring in an outside consultant, uh, KPMG. They examined uh, the reports that were provided by the police service and basically told the board that it was a sham. Another example I'm thinking of is, uh, which I know you've written about for Now Magazine uh, and we, we've covered on this podcast, uh, uh, we spoke to uh, uh, Professor Graham Hudson of Ryerson uh, who had a report uh, last year, I believe, uh, basically about uh, the whole idea of Sanctuary City, which uh, City Council ha had voted in favor of. And his report was saying that basically police uh, are just not, um, they're not following the sort of uh, principles of, of a Sanctuary City, not forwarding uh, uh, people's immigration status to higher authorities, uh, that kind of thing. Uh, again, just, uh, you know, the board had asked, you know, uh, on behalf of council to stop doing this practice and, and they just kept doing it. The board and the police service were ahead of the city initially in that we brought in a policy on sanctuary city on people without status in the city before the city did anything. And it was based on an agreement between the board and the chief that for the most part the police had no reason to inquire about anybody's status before providing them with service or responding to a call or what have you. What the chief cautioned the board against is the don't tell piece. Mm -hmm. It was the don't ask, don't tell policy that we were looking at. So while we agreed that the police had no reason in 99% of the cases to ask somebody's status, but because of the discretionary powers that were given to police officers, if by any means they were to come in possession of information, the chief, even the chief could not order them to keep silent. 
So we couldn't order them to not tell. But clearly, um, as years passed, um, the implementation of that policy uh, fell by the wayside. That is what Graham Hudson's report suggests. So what has happened is that the growing preoccupation with national security uh, and anti-terrorism uh, has seeped into the practices of the police service, not only Toronto, but generally. Mm -hmm. And that has undermined whatever progress we had made in those initial years when we brought in the policy to don't ask. Uh, our view was people will not come forward and interact with police when they were victims of violence or witness to violence if they were afraid that the consequence will be that the police um, uh, interaction results in their removal from this country or detention by immigration people. Right. So we wanted to facilitate um, a level of confidence where witnesses and victims of violence will come forward to the police. But it seems that considerations of national security and anti-terrorism have taken precedence over the safety of residents of this city. Right. And to that, that further culture switch and to the further militarization and, and further branch into anti-terrorism, as you say in the book, if if we decide that it is is it makes sense for our police to to be this sort of anti-terrorist uh, you know border security force then we want federal funding for that i mean we're we're doing this labor that should be a federal uh, issue uh, for for free with no with no funding from uh, any federal government um, but i think your point is uh, that we don't want that and that we, we want to move to a more uh, equitable, community-based sort of policing. Yeah, I, I mean, the point I make in the last chapter of the book is the, to justify the need for rethinking our model of policing is that we really need to parse out what are all the functions that are now being given to the police. There'll be more with the new cannabis legislation. Hundreds of millions of dollars are being allocated by the provincial government for municipalities. Where will that money go? A big chunk of it will go into policing. Mm -hmm. There'll be greater risk of um, discriminatory policing, of uh, police surveillance, of poor people, of uh, street people, of uh, racialized minorities as a consequence. But if that's the direction in which we are going, relying more and more on policing, and and I don't mean just the public police, I also mean the transit police, the campus police, the housing police. We need to think about all of those different forms of policing and ask ourselves, what are the functions that are directly related to community safety and wellness? My proposal is that we create a more integrated spider's web 
of services where the police is one part of a network it may mean reimagining or imagining a different organizational model but we need we need to have that conversation as communities particularly large urban communities like ours And you can find a looks book, Excessive Force, at the Spacing Store at 401 Richmond Street West in Toronto. Now, around the time of the First World War, people in Toronto started thinking seriously about the way the city worked. Or didn't. They wanted to quantify the city's various aspects and ask questions that might guide the way it grew into the future. The Bureau of Municipal Research was born. For nearly 70 years, the Bureau put out policy papers and reports trying to make sense of a young, burgeoning city. Today, this information has been digitized and is available for free to anyone who cares to access it. Here's U of T's Gabriel Edelman to tell us all about it. Uh, to get the ball rolling, uh, let's talk about the Urban Policy Lab. You are the director. That's right. So it's a, a new initiative at the School of Public Policy and Governance, and we'll be turning into the Monk School of Global Affairs and Public Policy as of July. Uh, it's a, a hub, a teaching and research hub for students and faculty uh, to focus their efforts and their urban research, that all the urban research that's happening at the school, bring it under one umbrella, so to speak, um, and create some new opportunities for partnerships and collaborations and interesting research projects. Mm-hmm. And uh, one of these projects that uh, you've undertaken is uh, to uh, digitize uh, the the archives of the Bureau of Municipal Research uh, can you tell me first about the about the bureau, how it came about, and and what its sort of legacy is? Yeah, so the the bureau was a little bit of a surprise to me originally, and I think it's a surprise to many. It's an organization that was around for uh, seventy years in Toronto, uh, tied to other similar bureaus across North America in places like New York, Chicago, Cincinnati, Philadelphia, I believe. Uh, Toronto had its own version of this, and for those seventy years, it was producing a whole bunch of policy reports on urban issues, the type of things we debate today, the type of stuff you talk about on your podcast and in your magazine. Um, and so uh, over time, it uh, produced a wonderful library of over 800 reports covering pretty much anything you might be interested in as an urbanist. And uh, it came out of a, a sort of era where people were looking at uh, cities, uh, they were described as reformers. When, when you talk about reformers, uh, you know, at the turn of the last century, what kind of reform were they looking at? Well, so this was a, a period of patronage, of, let's face it, corruption. Um, there were allegations. Tammany Hall. That Tammany of- Hall in New York. But even in Toronto, there were allegations in the, in the early 1900s that uh, positions like the city treasurer, uh, that the fire commissioner, these were positions that were appointed just based on whether that person got various leaders certain votes at election time. So it wasn't based on their professional expertise or experience. Uh, it was uh, an electoral uh, equation. Um, so the reformers um, were part of this broader movement, progressive movement to professionalize the municipal civil service. And that evolved uh, over time to to enhance the prof- professionalization of all public administration at various levels of government. Um, but the Bureau really started at the municipal level uh, in New York, um, and that concept, that idea, expanded across North America and eventually landed in Toronto as well. 
And it seems to kind of dovetail uh, in timeline and, and sort of ideology with, uh, you know, initiatives like uh, sending Arthur Goss, the the uh, sort of now famous, uh, 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 I believe he's the first Toronto official photographer for the city uh, who was going through... Um, what was then called St. John's Ward or just mm-hmm. the ward. That's right. Documenting the sort of poverty and the, uh, you know, the, some of the issues that uh, the residents there were facing and, and, uh, and that kind of out, out of that new knowledge, out of seeing these pictures and, and documenting the lifestyles there, uh, a lot of like progressive policy came out of that. So it, it seems like a similar thing, similar timeline. Yes, the, the the same push for documentation and better information, not necessarily progressive policy right. uh, coming out of the Bureau. The, for the first few decades, really the central focus of the Bureau uh, was to keep taxes low, to make uh, business flourish in the city of Toronto. It was a conservative uh, mindset in terms of the motivations that were behind some of these investigations. Um but that's you have to put everything in context there. So it was started by a group of prominent businessmen, you know, bankers, accountants, lawyers, etc. At the time, uh, people who may not have been in positions of formal power, but clearly had influence in the political system uh, and wanted to see some change. It may have benefited them, uh, you know, directly or indirectly. Um, but there was at least a semblance of independence there, and there was a semblance of the public good and the public interest. Uh, where this information could be used by others as well. It's not, it wasn't held uh, privately just for their own benefit. It says on your website that uh, in uh, 1983, the Bureau was forced to close. Uh, yes. Can you tell me a bit about that? Yeah, so the, this tracks with the evolution of the organization. It began as a self-funded organization uh, supported by wealthy businessmen and philanthropists. Over time, that evolved to more formal uh, donations from business groups. Eventually, that evolved also to include unions and other organizations, increasingly academic institutions and libraries, for example, through the 60s. Uh, And then into the 70s, when those donations started to dry up or maybe weren't sufficient to sustain some of the Bureau's operations, they uh, eventually turned to government grants and beca- became, for, at least from an outsider's perspective, looking back, perhaps too dependent on those grants. And when those grants dried up in the early 1980s, a period of austerity mm-hmm. at all levels, um, the Bureau just could not sustain its operations anymore. And it just, uh, as a one final salvo, uh, it, as a way to pay off its its uh, creditors and to pay the salaries of those that it had to lay off uh, in various packages. It made a deal with the municipality of Metropolitan Toronto, um, where in exchange for uh, one final grant, the city would then assume all of the the Bureau's library and all of its documents. uh, And that went to the first, the municipal library, and then now the city of Toronto archives. Right. And uh, and there it stayed uh, until... Uh, you uh, and, and your team uh, took it upon yourself to digitize it. But, uh, you know, what, what does it mean to have such an open access to these 800, as you say, reports going back all the way to, you know, to 1914? I think it provides perspective, most importantly, as kind of a civic education project. It just makes it one step easier for people to dig into the history of the city, learn more about their city and what the city can become. So on the website, we have some some small snippets where I've had students 
students and particularly my history and the students, the history students that I, uh, that I hired that are used to writing that type of narrative uh, to go through some of the reports by theme and build some sort of storyline of how the Bureau saw particular issues over time. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's, you know, the tip of the iceberg in terms of you bring people interested urbanists from across Toronto ask them to dig into the archives, pull out interesting stories, and that might set off a whole other journey, really, uh, where people can see what's happening, whether it's in terms of childcare services or mental health institutions, previously known as asylums in Toronto, and how the city dealt with that population to traffic and transportation. I saw... Uh, all kinds of different issues from sprawl to poverty to taxes to what's happening in the ward. There were reports on the ward. Uh, You name it, there's something in there. And I'm sure there are many other stories to be told as a result. In my time covering city issues, I've met some good cops. Great cops. Warm, giving people who work tirelessly to help strengthen bonds in the communities they serve. But I have to say, that is not the prevailing police culture in this city or any other North American city for that matter. Too often we're kept in the dark. We are asked to respect the police and to trust them implicitly. But trust is a two-way street. It isn't disrespectful to demand more. To demand better the police. After the G20 carding, violence against marginalized people, the misinformation surrounding the murders and disappearances in the gay village, the Toronto Police Service needs to do some very real, very public soul-searching about the way it exists and operates within the city as a whole. It starts at the community level. It starts by listening to and understanding the people police are paid to serve and protect. That model of policing exists. Those cops exist in Toronto today. It's time to make that the rule, and not the exception. And that is the show. Thanks so much for listening. If you like this episode, please tell your favorite constable, your librarian, and your mom. She pretty much has to listen if you put your baby brother on it, right? A like, share, subscribe, or rating on iTunes will help us reach new listeners, so if you have the time, please do any one of those things. I make this podcast with Neil Hinchley, who composes our music, and you can find his music on SoundCloud at Track82. That's all spelled out. If you have any questions, comments, concerns, or scoops, you can tweet at us at Spacing Radio. that's all one word, or you can email me at glennbowerman at spacing.ca, that's G-L-Y-N-B-O-W-E-R-M-A-N at spacing.ca. Visit our website at spacing.ca or visit our city store at 401 Richmond Street West in Toronto. In the meantime, happy pride. Cheers. Cheers.